one thinks of the influence of the visual arts on music of the early 20th century, composer Arnold Schoenberg doesn't readily spring to mind. Typically, Schoenberg is held up as modernism's example of the isolated and alienated artist who turned his back on his contemporaries and audiences. Yet we know that he forged friendships, some lasting, with artists and playwrights, among them Vasily Kandinsky and Kandinsky's partner Gabriela Munter, as well as with Oskar Kokoschka, Adolf Loos, Karl Moll, and Marc Chagall, who formally witnessed Schoenberg's conversion to Judaism in Paris in 1932. We know that Schoenberg also had a strong interest in the visual arts. He sketched and painted over 200 portraits, landscapes, and what he termed impressions and fantasies, and he also took an obsessive interest in the stage design and lighting of productions of his operas Erwartung and Die Glückliche Hand and von Heute auf Morgen. Largely self-taught as a visual artist and as a musician and librettist, many of his attempts in media other than music composition have been dismissed as naive and dilettantish, and to be blunt, mostly they are. As far as his paintings are concerned, Schoenberg initially believed he might make a living or at least supplement his income from their sale. In a letter of the 7th of March 1910, Schoenberg asked his publisher to find patrons to buy his works as, quote, it is much more interesting to have one's portrait done by a musician of my reputation than to be painted by some mere practitioner of painting whose name will be forgotten in 20 years, whereas even now my name belongs to the history of music, end quote is obviously modest. At his first public exhibition in Hugo Heller's bookshop gallery in Vienna in October 1910, only three of his 42 works displayed were purchased. And in 1911, any hopes of his and their commercial viability were dashed when Schoenberg learned from his student Anton Weben that the anonymous purchaser of the three works, all Mahler portraits, had been Mahler himself. <laughs> The critical reviews, too, were harsh, describing reactions to, for instance, his visions or gazes, such as his red gaze, as frightening. Quote, one is appalled and repulsed. It is a yawning chasm of the most ghastly dilettantism. Once the eye has recovered from all those surging, whirling, blurred, briny, snarling horrors, once it has learnt to see, a certain deeply rooted talent becomes apparent, a fantastic, bizarre, willful, creative power that has misappropriated its medium and become mired in slime, end quote. More sympathetically, music critic for Der Mecher, Paul Stefan, argued that, quote, only musicians, only those who know Schoenberg's music and its secrets should look at these pictures, for only they will experience them elementally as sounds transposed across all the accidental boundaries of form. It was therefore virtually essential to have the music of Schoenberg ringing in one's ears as one viewed this exhibition. And in fact, two of Schoenberg's string quartets were performed on site during this exhibition of his paintings. You have the advantage of having some Schoenberg ringing in your ears now. Commentators then and now have viewed Schoenberg's painting style as static, displaying over, over time little or no development. Schoenberg, in fact, agreed with this view and, in an interview much later in his life, explained that, quote, as a painter, I was absolutely an amateur. I had no theoretical training and only a little aesthetic training, and this only from general education. In music, it was different. I had always had the opportunity to study the works of the masters and to study them in quite a professional way so that my technical ability grew in the normal manner, end quote. What's not being considered, however, is the more subtle and fundamental role his experiments in the visual arts in particular may have played in his changing aesthetic. My argument is that Schoenberg's interest in the visual and performing arts passed through three stages. The first is marked by a preoccupation in his visual, musical and theoretical works with colour, 
and the second by descriptions of space. The third stage is more difficult to categorise, but in the final section of the presentation this morning, I'll suggest that one of the distinctive features of his last years is an interest in depictions of time. Throughout his life, Schoenberg drew, designed and invented card games, a chessboard for four players, and a tennis scoring system are just some examples. Most of his paintings, however, date from just six years, between 1907 and 1912. In 1905, Schoenberg met the painter Richard Gerstel, as both uh, Jack and, and Will have mentioned, then only 22 years old, who was living in the same apartment building in Vienna as the Schoenberg family. The friendship was strong enough that Gerstel painted all the members of the immediate Schoenberg family in 1905, the year this photograph of Schoenberg was taken in his studio. And here I'd like you to note too that Schoenberg had his own paintings hanging on, on the wall. <laughs> Gerstel's paintings included Schoenberg himself, and this one I find interesting because I think it's actually the same venue and the same suit as in this photograph. And that's, you'll see that, this particular portrait in the exhibition here. And Gerstel spent the summer holidays with the Schoenbergs at the resort town of Gmunden. It's now accepted, although Schoenberg was adamant that he was entirely self-taught and had learnt to paint without the influence of Kandinsky, Kokoschka and others, that Gerstel probably taught Schoenberg his basic technique. Shown here in a 1910 painting by Schoenberg, Schoen, uh, Schoenberg's first wife, Matilda, left her husband and two young children to live with Gerstel in the summer of 1908, only returning after three months when Weber intervened. The night she returned, Gerstel burnt all his paintings and committed suicide by stabbing himself in the chest and then hanging himself in front of the mirror in his studio he used to create his self-portraits. Schoenberg refused to allow Gerstel's name to be mentioned by anyone who knew of the affair and consequently Gerstel's role in Schoenberg's development as a painter was suppressed until long after all their deaths. One of the painters Schoenberg owned up to most admiring, however, through his life was Gustav Klimt. And Schoenberg's paintings from his early period share with Klimt an interest in ornament and strong colour. What is more striking, however, is that interest in ornament and colour carried over into Schoenberg's musical works. There are many examples, not only of colours and colour imagery, but also of clear word painting in his tonal and free atonal works of the time. And just a few examples include in his tonal setting for piano and voice of a text by Richard Demel entitled Evartel, or Expectation, the use of a colour chord that sounds when the text refers to the colours red and sea green, and his highlighting of the image of the woman's red dress in his opera setting of Evartel, and in his Pierre Lulet song settings, much textual and musical repetition, word painting and ornamentation of pallid white moonlight, black waves and sky and moths, and references to blood, lots of blood, crimson, red and scarlet. The most extreme example occurs in his opera Die Glückliche Hand, in which Schoenberg intended spots of white light to illuminate the gazes of the opening chorus and a colour crescendo of changing coloured lights to accompany the climax of the dramatic action. In this sketch, the colours align with the bars, that's the Tacht word there, at which the coloured lights were to change. A film version was planned in 1913 of Die Glückliche Hand, in which Schoenberg declared that he would need complete control over all aspects of the production and that he would collaborate only with Kokoschka, Kandinsky or legendary stage designer Alfred Roller to create the sets. Schoenberg declared that, quote, it must be evident that gestures, colours and light are treated here similarly to the way tones are usually treated, that music is made with them, that figures and shapes, so to speak, are formed from individual light values and shades of colour, which resemble the forms, figures and motives of music, end quote. Needless to say, the film didn't happen. 
Also around this time, Schoenberg developed what he called Klangfarben melody or tone color melody. As he described in his Harmony Lehrer or Theory of Harmony textbook, pitch was merely tone color measured in one direction. And as there was yet no theory of tone color, so far he had juxtaposed and ordered tone colors instinctively. In his musical works, it was this interest in tone colors and properties of individual sounds that captured the attention of Kandinsky and other artists of the New Artists Association of Munich. Kandinsky, Franz Mach, and Gabriela Munter all attended a concert of Schoenberg's works on the 2nd of January 1911 in Munich and heard performances of a number of his songs and his Opus 7 and Opus 10 string quartets, the latter completed and dedicated to Schoenberg's wife just a month after she had left Gerstel and returned to Schoenberg. On the 3rd of January 1911, the day after this concert, Kandinsky completed two sketches of the concert. The first, at the top here, appears to show all the performers on stage with their instruments. In the second, the performers and the room setting, the piano and chandelier, have taken on more abstract roles. In Kandinsky's third version of the scene, a painting in oils, the performers have merged with the audience and the singer has been transformed to a streak of white. The picture is dominated by yellow, the colour of musical sound in Kandinsky's synesthetic vocabulary. So this painting is really a depiction of Kandinsky's collected recollections and impressions of the concert, including Schoenberg's piano piece, Opus 11, number three. Shortly after the concert, Kandinsky sent Schoenberg photographs of two of his paintings and a copy of his book on the spiritual in art. He generously noted that, quote, in your works, you've realized what I've so longed for in music, the independent progress through their own destinies, the independent life of the individual voices in your compositions is exactly what I'm trying to find in my paintings, end quote. Schoenberg reciprocated by sending Kandinsky a copy of his Harmony Lehrer textbook, as well as an autographed photo of, of himself in his study, surrounded by his own paintings, which is this one here. Underneath the photo, he notated a quote from the vocal line of the fourth movement of the Opus 10 string quartet that has, uh, in that fourth, third and fourth movement, you have string quartet plus voice. And this was a setting of Stefan Georg's poem, Entrückung, or Transported. The quote reads, Ich löse mich in Tönen, I lose myself in tones. And clearly in context here, that can mean tones as in musical sounds, but also tones as in tints, shades, or colours. On, at Kandinsky's request, Schoenberg then provided eight of his own paintings for display in the group's, group's Blauerreiter or Blue Rider exhibition in Munich, and for the subsequent publication of the Blue Rider Almanac in 1912, his essay, The Relationship to the Text, and his newly composed setting for high soprano voice, Harmonium, Celeste, and Harp of Metalink's poem Herzgewächser, or Foliage of the Heart. It's no coincidence that the highly unusual instrumental combination in Herzgewächser foregrounds tone colours and the very upper limits of the vocal and instrumental ranges. These mirror the song's references to the colour blue with its pre-Raphaelite and symbolist association with heaven and for Kandinsky, as Schoenberg knew well from Kandinsky's book, blue was also the colour of spirituality and artistic creativity. Likewise, the essay, The Relationship to the Text, consciously refers to its audience, naming Kandinsky and Kokoschka, and with a nod in its closing paragraphs to analogies between music and painting. The paintings, four of which were displayed, included uh, this particular one, Red Gaze, Schoenberg's self-portrait from 1910 that I showed earlier, and again, Schoenberg's works did not fare well with the critics. 
Kandinsky continued to champion, champion Schoenberg's instinctive approach, but Schoenberg refused in 1912 to be part of a second Blue Rider exhibition, claiming, quote, I am surely an outsider, an amateur, a dilettante. Whether I should exhibit at all is already a question. Whether I should exhibit with a group of painters is almost no longer a question, end quote. Interestingly, however, Schoenberg did continue to paint for himself, including another gaze later in 1912 that must have been influenced by Kandinsky's belief that musical sound should be represented in the visual arts by the colour yellow. Again, that's the, the original is a lot, lot in, more intense than that. However, after this initial intense period from 1907 to 1912 of, as Schoenberg later termed it, making music with colours and forms, any one-to-one -one connections between Schoenberg and individual painters become meaningless. Yet many of his works after this time reveal, and in some cases are structured around, his desire to depict space. Not just musical space, but, as Holly Watkins has argued, also architectural and interior and exterior spaces. I'm not sure I completely buy her argument, especially having seen the exhibition here, that Schoenberg's ideas about space were strongly influenced by those of, of Adolf Loos, as Schoenberg's friendship with Loos, although lifelong, does not appear to me to have translated to a deep understanding of or genuine sympathy for Loos's pared-back aesthetic. But I do think Schoenberg was interest, interested in space in a metaphysical way. And here I'm thinking of the opening of his 12-tone prelude to the Genesis Suite from 1944, in which he attempts, by means of a wordless 12-tone chorus, to depict pre-creation, that is literally space, and also the 1917 opening of his Oratorio de Jakobsleiter, in which he attempted to use the 12 tones, set as a six-tone ostinato figure in the bass and a complementary six-tone ladder in the higher instruments, to depict the span between heaven and earth and the depth and breadth of a Swedenborgian heaven with no absolute up or down, left or right, backwards or forwards. An image that, in the mid-1930s, Schoenberg used in his famous composition with 12 tones lecture to describe 12 tone space. Historian Peter Conrad connects such widespread interest in metaphysics to new understandings of physics and the universe in that, quote, a belief in absolute time and space seemed about to vanish, end quote. Certainly Schoenberg, at the beginning of a lecture he gave in Breslau in 1928 on Luklicke Hunt, explicitly refers to the shifting comprehension of space and time when he describes small changes in our night sky that we now realise may have been cataclysmic events that happened, quote, a couple of thousand years early, earlier. Now, of course, he's got the time frame wrong, but you can see that, that idea of the universe becoming larger in people's conception. Um, and I do think Schoenberg moved from concentrating on interior landscapes at this time, the world of the isolated artist who turns his back on the world, as shown in this self-portrait Schoenberg displayed at the Heller and Blauwriter exhibitions, to attempting to depict and embrace the exterior world, the world he had previously cut out of his artistic space, as this sketch for the same painting shows. In many ways, he was, of course, moving with the times. For those who had served in the armed forces in the First World War, like Schoenberg and the painter Georg Grosch, who was renowned for documenting changes to Berlin's landscape during the war and immediately after it, the era of the flaneur and of the isolated artist had necessarily come to an end. But especially in the 1920s, this was also a time for experimentation. Schoenberg expressed this artistic freedom most eloquently in an aphorism that appeared in a manuscript he wrote in August 1923. Quote, science aims to present its ideas exhaustively so that no question remains unanswered. In contrast, art is content with a many-sided presentation from which the idea will emerge unambiguously but without having to be stated directly. 
Consequently, a window remains open through which, from the standpoint of knowledge, presentiment demands entry." End quote. While, for instance, in the 1922 edition of his Harmonie, Lehrer Schoenberg had written that one could not mix tonal with atonal music, as this would be like combining Japanese art with, he claimed, its lack of perspective and depth, which he equated to the triad, with Western art centre's sense of perspective, here equated with atonality. Yet by February 1923, in a lecture given to his students on the first 12-tone works, Schoenberg was prepared to signal a significant shift in his aesthetic in declaring that, quote, Yet it is possible that a combination of components with perspective and components lacking perspective could exist in one work of art." End quote. At the same time, Schoenberg acknowledged that there were still limits. Take musical space, which unlike the universe, did he suggest have limits, quote, circumscribed by recollection. In his 1934 lecture on composition with 12 tones, he noted that, quote, every musical configuration, every movement of tones has to be comprehended primarily as a mutual relation of sounds, of oscillatory vibrations appearing at different times and places. To the imaginative and creative faculty, relations and material sphere are as independent from directions or planes as material objects are in their sphere to our perceptive faculties. Just as our mind, for instance, always recognizes a knife, a bottle, or a watch, regardless of its position, and can reproduce it in the imagination in every possible position, even so, a musical creator's mind can operate subconsciously with a row of tones, regardless of their direction, regardless of the way in which a mirror might show the mutual relations which remain a given quality." End of quote. The persistence of time, Dali's famous painting from 1931 shown here, would seem to be the perfect realization of these views. While Schoenberg conveniently left several clear references in his letters and lectures to compositions with colour and form and the conceptualisation of musical space, I have far less to go on when it comes to what I think are his ideas about time. This is a composer famously silent, or at least ambivalent, when it comes to any substantial writings on musical time. And if we turn to the visual works of Schoenberg's contemporaries, with the exception of Dali's and Marguerite's grapplings with the physical universe and the passing of time, it's a subject otherwise virtually ignored until after the Second World War. Yet in Schoenberg's music itself in the late 1940s, at a time when he was asthmatic, diabetic and near blind, there runs a strong undercurrent of musical space circumscribed by recollection. Recollection in time present of time past in terms of collective memory in The Survivor from Warsaw, in terms of historical recollection in Ode to Napoleon, and most strikingly his terms of his, in terms of his own autobiographical recollection in his trio for strings of August-September 1946 of his own near-death experience. On the 2nd of August 1946, an allergic reaction to a new drug he'd been given to ease an asthma attack caused Schoenberg to go into cardiac arrest. He was only resuscitated by an injection of adrenaline directly to the heart. Schoenberg started writing the trio on the 20th of August while still recuperating, and he made it clear that the work was intended to be an autobiographical account of his death, or Todesfall, and recovery. It would have been very satisfying had I been able to tie these three perspectives of colour, space and time to clear evolutionary stages in Schoenberg's development. He would have liked that, but art isn't like that at all. And so I just wanted to finish with one final musical example, which demonstrates that a simple, elegant, perfect piece can in fact show us that perhaps instinctively there were moments throughout his life in which Schoenberg combined all three perspectives. In his tribute to Mahler, his little piano piece, Opus 19, number six, the companion piece to Schoenberg's painting of Mahler's funeral, shown here, both created in 1911, just after Mahler's death, 
We hear evocative tone colours, the bells that Mahler loved, while silence and registral contrast and space note repetition create a sense of space bounded by recollection. In this piece, as in the best works of art, we're aware as time passes and time ends that musical space and time are circumscribed by our own mortality. Thank you. Thank you.